Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. This is a place for history geeks like me, patriots and people who just love a good story. Preferably one involving men with guns and swords of course. Today's episode is episode number 8 and it's the last of season 1 which covered the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. But don't despair, I'm already writing season 2 and hope to have an episode out on schedule in December. Listen till the end of the episode and I'll tell you more about that. But anyway, let's focus on today and my interview with author James Mace. James is a fascinating character, a retired American soldier who has written a series of five novels on the Anglo-Zulu War. They're brilliantly written page-turners that are crammed with real history. I first met James virtually on Ian Knight's Anglo-Zulu War Facebook page and I thought he would add real value to season one and help to fill in a few gaps in my knowledge. I began by asking James to tell us a bit about himself. I, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, which for your non-American uh, viewers, it's in the Pacific Northwest of the US. According to my parents, I've been telling stories since I was six. You know, apparently I've always liked telling stories. And people are kind of surprised sometimes to find out how passionate I am about British history. I sometimes self-identify as American-born British at heart. Um, but like many, I first saw the film Zulu when I was a kid, was totally enthralled. I, I would have to say as much as the film gets criticism from modern historians because of its inaccuracies, the real truth is, if not for the film, there probably wouldn't be a, uh, an interest in the Anglo-Zulu War. Yeah, so that's how I look at that. And my, my initial passion was always ancient Rome. I, my, I can thank my parents for getting me into history in the first place. In fact, my, my dad really pushed my sister and I to read at a very young age. And I was one of those times who could pick up a dry history book and be enthralled. I mean, I'll look at a book that people may think, okay, this is as dry as burnt toast, and I'm geeking out. I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. So that's the reason why I write novels instead of history books is because I want to capture that interest for the average reading public. So I wrote the initial draft of my first book when I was in, the, in Iraq with the U.S. Army, and it was just cathartic escapism. Um, for a year and a half, I ate, I slept, I hit the gym, and I wrote a book when I wasn't out on missions. And that was the first of my Ancient Rome series. And then it just kind of became a hobby that snowballed from there. And, and so this was late 2005, early 2006. I did supported self-publishing and really found a niche in the Ancient Roman audience but it wasn't until around 2011 I thought, well, what about other eras? I, I love the British Empire, and <clears throat> I've actually written a trio of books set during the Napoleonic era. And I did that kind of as a way to branch out and see, can I write something besides ancient, ancient Rome? They were well-received. And then so in 2011, I had written uh, – correction, I had read several books um, – like, I think the very first I read, I borrowed from my parents, uh, Like Wolves on the Fold by Lieutenant Colonel Mike Snook. About Is that Rourke's the one Drift. about Rook's Drift? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that was the, the follow-up to his How Can Man Die Better about Isandawana. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And they were they were quite good. But by his own admission, he even says in the preface that his focus is on his regiment. That that was his regiment. And he even gives props to Ian Knight saying, if you want to learn the Zulu perspective and about the Zulu side of things, read some of his works. So I did. I, I can't remember which ones I started with. But I think, yeah, it was 2011. I decided, yeah, I, I want to take this on. It was going to be a long term project. I still had um, my uh, my initial ancient Roman series to finish up. So I reached out and contacted the uh, the Royal Regiment Royal Regiment of Wales Museum, who they, they were the successors of the 24th. And heard back from their curator, a gentleman named Bill Kanan, who's a retired regimental sergeant major from the Royal Engineers. We became really good friends. And so I, I flew over uh, to the UK and spent a few days in Wales at the museum. And he gave me access to everything. In fact, one of the coolest things was I actually got to hold and photograph the VCs of Gonville Bromhead and Henry Hook. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Uh, they're normally kept in a bank vault because they just don't have the security measures in place, you know, like the National Army Museum in London. But he'd had them in their safe because I, I don't know if one of the other curators or, you know, some nobleman wanted to come see him. I don't know the story. He, he just told me, hey, James, go get your camera. So I did. And he's got his white gloves on and he opens a safe and pulls out Hook and Bromhead's VCs. That was cool. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, but I didn't actually start writing for another two years on it. Um, actually, it might have been longer than that. I'd have to look when Brutal Valor actually came out. Uh, it was around 2013, actually, that Ian Knight reached out to me. Uh, he had heard about me from Bill Kanan. And I always thought that I reached out to him and asked him for his assistance. But... Uh, looking back through my old emails, no, it was him. He he reached out to me. <clears throat> and so that year, um, I, I was across the pond. I spent a lot of time in the UK. I, I love it over there. I would actually move there tomorrow. <laughs> Not that I don't love where I live now, but I just have a real affinity uh, for for the British culture and, and all the places there. So... Flew over, met up with Ian, actually got to hang out with him at his house and got to see his office with all his Zulu war relics. That was cool. And I asked him years later, I said, so what were your thoughts? Did you think, OK, who's this American who says he wants to write novels on the Zulu war? You know, who, who does he think he is? And, and I actually asked him that question when I did his uh, tour in South Africa. And he said, I bet. Yeah, I thought that a little bit. But, you know, he could tell I was passionate about it. And I think because Bill had spoken highly of me and Bill had read some of my other books. So he was yeah. <clears throat> he was willing to offer his assistance. Um, but again, like I said, it was a long term project. It was about five years from the time I decided I eventually want to take this on before I put pen to paper and started working on Brutal Valor, the first book of the series. Well, I mean, that's probably a good a good place, actually, for you to tell us about the, the five book series that you, you're just finishing, right? Could you sort of tell us about the five books you've written about the Anglo-Zulu War? Sure. Uh, my, my intent was always to cover the entire war, not just what we know in the films, and to give readers, even though they're novels, not history books, but they are heavily, heavily vetted by historians. In fact, uh, Ian Knight I've actually hired to 
go through each book and tell me this is correct, no, this is not correct, etc. In fact, he's working on the final book as we speak, and um, his uh, due date is Friday. So, <laughs> so we'll see. But anyhow, so I started at the beginning with Brutal Valor, the subtitle being The Tragedy of Isandawana. And you get a lot of the back history in there. You know, I start before the war. In fact, actually, there's a prologue chapter talking about the rise of King Quetzalcoatl and how he became king of the Zulus. And then we do the whole buildup, uh, the political situation, you know, uh, Sir Henry Bartle Freer issuing his ultimatum, essentially starting an illegal war because the home government and the queen had no idea. They had, they had told them not to start a war with the Zulus. I mean, these were their allies and trading partners. Why would they want to start a fight with them? Freer saw them as a threat, and well, we know the rest. So, And it culminates with the Battle of Isandawana. And I follow... The main protagonist is a young private with the 24th. He's just finished recruit training. In fact, he's one of a draft of 80 new soldiers who Captain Reginald Young Husband brought with him to South Africa a few months before the war. Uh, young Husband was on extended leave, and he was basically told, oh, hey, before you return to South Africa, we got a bunch of new recruits you're going to take with you. And so he's the main protagonist, and then I follow a Zulu protagonist, a young warrior named uh, Kwanelli. And so they, that helped me balance it out so that I could tell from both perspectives from the individual soldier level, because neither the Redcoat nor the Warrior had any idea as to the political situation or I mean, both sides were probably wondering why. Why are we fighting each other? And then, it, you know, it ends at the Battle of Isandawana and it leads into the second book. In fact, <clears throat> I admit I kind of I, I kind of lifted a little bit of dialogue from the film Zulu Dawn. Uh, at, at the end of that, when uh, you know Chelmsford's standing over the ruined remains of the camp, and I think it's Creelock who tells him, you know, we're looking towards Rock's Drift and the sky is red with fire. That scene happens at the end of my book, but it takes place at Helpmakar, and it's a different group of characters. Uh, in fact, it's right, yeah. it, it's uh, Private Sam Wassell who earned the Victoria Cross. He was the only survivor of Isandawana to be decorated for valor uh, for saving the life of one of his mates who was drowning in the river. Was it Private Westwood, <clears throat> was it? What's that name? Was it Private Westwood he saved, as I recall, or am I wrong? Uh, West, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it was Thomas Westwood who, actually, I got his first name wrong in the first book, so... Uh, yeah, he saved uh, Private Westwood, and they retired to help Nakar. And so he he informs Captain Alan Gardner, or Captain Essex, who was the senior officer still alive that had, had made it to help Nakar. And, and I had asked Ian this, too. I said, okay, could could they have seen the fires of Rourke's Drift from help Nakar? And he said, yes, they could. Because so I thought, okay, it's 15 miles, but is there terrain in the way? So no, they could see it. So, so the, the book ends... Spoiler alert, uh, the, the book ends with Essex saying, you know, dear God, Rourke's Drift burns. There's a lot of overlap between the books of the series. In fact, the first four books all overlap each other at various times. So the second book is called Crucible of Honor, The Battle of Rourke's Drift. And it begins a little bit beforehand, because now we've got a new cast of characters 
that's been one of the biggest challenges is in every book I've got a new cast. And are all your characters, I know in the first book they were all based on real people. Is it the same throughout the series? As much as possible. Um, and I'll be honest, in the first book, so Private Arthur Wilkinson, the main protagonist, I lifted his name off the rolls of the 24th. I know nothing about him other than his name and service number, because unfortunately, so many of the records were lost because the battalion had them all at Isandawana. And so all we know are names. We, we hardly even know what company individual soldiers belong to, even at like the senior NCO level. Um, there were the, cause there was five companies from first of the 24th. And so I put, um, color Sergeant Thomas Brown with C company and captain young husband. Well, there's a one in four chance. I got it right to be brutally honest, because the only color Sergeant who we know by name, what company he was in was Frederick Wolf, who was with H company. So I think, well, of the remaining four, well, there's one in four chance. It, it was, uh, it was Brown that was with young husband. Uh, now, the, the second book was much easier because we know so much more about Rourke's Drift and, and, the, and the soldiers who fought there. Not just the VC recipients, but a lot of the soldiers as a whole. We, we know a lot more about them. So I had a lot more to work with as far as their personalities, um, their histories, their backstories, how they would have reacted in a given situation. In situations where I don't have that, I, I use balance of probability. <clears throat> I, I'm given a little bit of artistic license because they are novels I'm writing, as long as it's plausible. As, as long as a reader doesn't look at it and say, oh, that's a load of bollocks. That never would have happened. <laughs> as long as that doesn't happen, then, then I'm doing all right. Uh, and actually, probably the, the biggest praise I received, if that's an appropriate word, on Crucible of Honor was the correcting of a lot of myths that persisted from the film. Just just a few examples, like um, e even though Nigel Green was legendary as Color Sergeant Frank Bourne, well, he, he was like, you know, around 40 years old, six foot four and built like a tank. The real Frank Bourne was five foot six and 24 years old and described himself as painfully thin in his journal. Uh, he he was, I believe, the youngest color sergeant in the entire British Army. So he he was an anomaly. Uh, but a lot of it is is the age. And that's something that Hollywood and the film industry gets wrong so much. Although in Zulu, they got it right with the extras. If you look at all the extras playing the Redcoats, they're all young kids because they cast real soldiers. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't either, actually, until not too long ago. And there's uh, a picture. There's two group photos of B Company uh, from the film. One shows them all in their uh, costumes. And then in the second picture, all the extras are wearing their actual army uniforms. Uh, uh, so, suppose, pr presumably they were SADF guys, South African Defense Force. <clears throat> I don't know if they were if they were SADF or if they were British Army. I, I don't know. I um, someone else would have to be able to answer that. But you know, like for the main cast, um, Chard and Bromhead were about the right age because uh, Sir Stanley Baker and Sir Michael Caine were both in their thirties, and that's about where they were. But like, um, and especially films in the nineteen sixties, they were notorious for casting actors who a lot of times were twice the age of their historical counterparts. 
Uh, Dennis Graham, who was pushing 40, I think, was Private Robert Jones, who was 21. It's an uncomfortable truth in warfare that wars are fought by kids. Your average soldier is going to be 18 to 21 years old, and that hasn't changed throughout history. Um, And like just a couple other, you know, myths that um, I managed to dispel without ramming it down the reader's throat. But like Henry Hook, who's depicted as a malingerer, a drunkard and all this other stuff. When, in fact, historians know he was a model soldier, had just gotten his good conduct pay. Uh, He wasn't malingering under arrest. No, he was assigned to the hospital specifically because he was known for being very cool and very calm in a crisis. And that's why he was assigned there. Color Sergeant Bourne had actually assigned the defenders of the hospital, which was different on the inside. It didn't have a hallway. It was mostly a bunch of little rooms. And a lot of them weren't even connected to each other. And they were tiny. There was a few patients laying on pallets. They didn't even have real bunks. And you'd have one or two defenders in there. And Bourne and Brumhead knew, okay, we need guys in here who aren't going to panic when everything falls apart. And so those those soldiers were selected specifically for that reason. Uh, But it it was cool to tell the story. And I admit, I still envisioned a lot of the visuals from the film Zulu, which were fantastic. And I try to also tell it from their perspective. In fact, there was a a main castle uh, correction warrior named Mandolin Kosi, who makes his first appearance. He's a member of the Uthulwana Regiment, uh, King Kechwayo's personal regiment. And you're going to have to correct me if I get pronunciations wrong on a lot of the Zulu names. You're a lot better versed there than I am. Uh, So the, the Uthulwana, they were older. They were like in their early 50s, thereabouts. And... And I focused on Mandolin Kosi because I, I, I wrote him as a character who had a son who he later finds out was killed at Isandawana. And he takes part in the Battle of Rock's Drift, or Kwajimu, as the Zulus called it. And then um, the story continues for about two weeks after the battle. So we see the battle, um, and then Chelmsford shows up with the remnants of the number three column, and we see the the expedition that retrieved the Queen's color that of the of the first battalion that was lost. So we get to see that. And then moving into the third book. Now the third and fourth books happen simultaneously. Because okay, we focused on the center column with the first two books. Book three, we go to the southern column. See, people who've only seen the films don't even realize there were three invasion columns, not just the one that that got smacked at Isandawana, and they weren't all wiped out, like they say in the film Zulu. You know, they thought, the, they said, the, you know, Michael Caine even says at one point, the entire column is gone. No, they weren't. It, it was about half. It was still catastrophic. Let's not minimize that. But they never mentioned the other two invasion forces. So book three, which is called Lost Souls, the Forgotten Heroes of Ashawe, is about the southern number one column under Colonel Charles Pearson. And they were the ones who hugged the coastline and ended up under siege at Ashawi. And I, I named the book that, I actually had a little bit of help with the title from uh, Neil Thornton, who's another author. In fact, he did a book called uh, Rourke's Drift, a, a, a Different Perspective, I think. He'll, he'll, he'll correct me if I got that wrong. It, uh, I've read it, it's fantastic. But he actually helped me a little bit with the title there. 
And I really wanted to focus on the forgotten heroes because both sides kind of just forgot about Ishawe afterwards. Neither the Zulus nor the British wanted to talk about it. In fact, ju just as an example, if you mention the Zulu War to just your average reader or a person who has a passing interest, they'll know Isandawana and Rook's Drift. How many people actually know there was a third battle the, the same, same day? day? Very few. Yeah. Very few. Yeah. And I think you've walked the battlefield there, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Nyazani. Um, yeah, yeah. So few people have heard about that. In fact, Nyazani was wrapping up about 9.30 in the morning, so about the same time that Lieutenant Colonel Pelayne first spotted elements of the Zulus and sent his rather vague message to Chelmsford. And, yeah, people don't realize that th those happened the same day. And then... So that book, I had to rely a lot more on fictional characters because being a retired senior non-commissioned officer who served in the ranks, I like focusing on the soldiers in the ranks as my primary focus. So I had to use a lot of fictional characters, but we do see like Captain Warren Wynn of the Royal Engineers, who was credited by Colonel Pearson and Lord Chelmsford spoke highly of him. Uh, he, he was a master engineer, <clears throat> could build anything, and they credit him with keeping the column alive. He designed the Fort of Ishawe, a lot of the booby traps they used, the defense works and all that. And Pearson flat out said in his report, he said, if, if not for Captain Wynn, none of us would have survived. And isn't the irony Wynn then himself died? He did. He, he died about a week after the relief of the siege. Uh, he, he he lived long enough to reach Fort Pearson at Lower Drift along the Thukela River. I don't think he was even conscious at that point. His fever was so bad that I think he'd been almost in a coma the entire time. And sad thing is he died on his 36th birthday. So that was um, – and, well, and I'm pretty sure you've visited his grave at the uh, Fort Pearson uh, Cemetery. I've, I've been to the cemetery there. Um, it was a few years ago. I can't remember if I saw his grave or not, to be honest. It, sad thing is, like a lot of war graves, it, it's in a bad state of disrepair. There used to be a large cross on it. It's gone. I don't know how many years ago. it. I don't know if it was vandalized or I heard rumor that somebody had put it in a museum for safekeeping. I don't know the real story there. So And, and we see the arrival of reinforcements showing up towards the end of the siege of Ishawe. And then Chelmsford himself leads the expedition to break the siege and then fights the battle at Ginginlavu. And that was mostly fought with three battalions who had just showed up. The 91st Highlanders, the 57th West Middlesex, and 3rd Battalion of the 60th Rifles, who were distinct because like their predecessors in the Napoleonic Wars, they wore green jackets instead of red. Was their distinction. And then there was another battalion that was kind of a hodgepodge of companies from the 99th and 3rd Buffs regiments that were still at lower drift uh, while the rest of their mates were under siege at Ishawe. They were basically the guys who had been doing convoy escort duties before they got cut off. And so they fight the Battle of Gingin Lavu, and then that's where that one ends. The fourth book, which again takes place at the same time, is uh, called Cruelty of Fate, The Fight for Kambula. So now we've moved to the Northern Theater under uh, Colonel Henry Evelyn Wood, VC, 
who earned the Victoria Cross uh, 20 some years earlier. And his number four column was actually the smallest. It, it was slightly smaller. He still had two battalions of regular infantry redcoats. His indigenous warriors were not from Natal. They weren't part of the Natal native contingent. They were actually Zulus. They, they were turncoat Zulus who fought for the British. That one was really complicated to write. I'm not going to lie. Because the situation in the north was very complex. Not just, okay, we're advancing as the northern pincer towards the royal crawl of Ulundi. But we're dealing with... Um, their their left flank was essentially exposed. The right flank under Pearson, they had the Indian Ocean to protect their right flank, essentially. The, the left flank of the northern column, um, well, they had to deal with a tribe called the Abakalusi. The Abakalusi were not Zulus. They were Zulu allies who had sworn fealty to King Ketchwile. But because they were technically not part of the Amabutho, of the Zulu regiments, they did not have to heed the call to muster at Ulundi when the king summoned all the regiments together. Because aren't they ethnically Swazis? No, they are. They are not. They are actually just. They're different than the Swazis. They're ethnically their own. The Abakalusi are their own ethnicity. Why you might think that is because the the man who led their military was a Swazi, uh, Prince Umbalini. Uh, Umbalini. Yeah, he was a uh, exiled Swazi prince who essentially tried to take the Swazi throne. He was the eldest son of his father, but their rules of succession were complicated, kind of like the Zulus. It was not necessarily the firstborn, but it was the firstborn of the chief wife, which the king could change at his leisure. And so Prince Umbellini had tried taking the throne when his father died. And he did not have the popular support. He goes into exile for about 16 years, I believe. Uh, so, so he was in his late 30s at this time. And he had sworn his fealty to King Quechuao, probably with the hope that someday Quechuao is going to help him claim the Swazi throne. I, I think that was his intent there. And he was, he was cunning. I mean, he, he was very smart. He was, and he was little. You look at photographs of him, like, he looks like, I, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell because most people were shorter back then. I would have to say he looks like he's maybe 5'2", five 5'3", five in height and weighs maybe 100 pounds. So he doesn't look threatening at all. But he was very clever and he could fight. And and he even admitted, um, you know, in, in accounts, well, accounts that were recorded from uh, from Abu Kalusi and Zulus later, he didn't. He knew he could not fight the British in open battle. He never would have contemplated that. Where he excelled was guerrilla warfare and harassing Woods Column and harassing the local settler communities. So, so that's just one element that Woods dealing with. Not only that, he's got the uh, Transvaal Boers to deal with, who he had spent months prior to the invasion trying to win over, because you, you probably know well that the, the Dutch Boers and the British absolutely hated each other. They hated each other. And, well, he had secured an alliance, a tentative alliance, with uh, members of the Boer community, but that got unraveled because when the, uh, when the ultimatum was 
unveil to the Zulus. And so we're backing up a little bit here, so forgive me for that. But there was the uh, boundary dispute between the Transvaal, which now belonged to the British, but was all settled with Boers and the Zulu kingdom. Well, the Boundary Commission found in favor of the Zulus. This is before the war. So the Boers are like, oh, your Boundary Commission just found in favor of the Zulus and want to give them our, our land, you know, that they thought was theirs. And so instead of a promised force of 2,000 uh, Boer horsemen, he got about 50 uh, under a gentleman named Pete Ace. And I had to ask uh, how to pronounce his last name because it's spelled U-Y-S. And I had to ask people who actually spoke Dutch. It's like, oh, it's pronounced Ace. Okay. I, I especially had to tell the gentleman who does my audiobooks for me about that. <laughs> yeah. So Wood's got the Abacalusi to deal with. He's got political issues with the Boers who are not happy. And he's still got to complete the advance on Ulundi. And then, oh, by the way, he finds out about Isandawana and everything's become unraveled. And he becomes the only fighting force left. You know, the the number three column uh, was shattered at Isandawana. The survivors, they there's not much they can do because they've lost their ammunition, their wagons, their tents. They can't move. They're basically confined to Rourke's Drift and Helmacar. And Colonel Pearson's number one column in the south is now trapped at Ishawe. And Woods kind of fretting a little bit because he has no intelligence on what the Zulus are actually doing. And he's thinking to himself, oh, great, is Quechuayo going to send the entire Impi north to attack me now? So that's the premise there. And then we see... Uh, we, we see the battle at Untombi, at My, uh, Myers Drift, with the 80th Staffordshire, which was a disaster for the British. Um, the abortive attack. What's that? Another disaster. Another disaster. Yeah, there was, there was a string of them. Um, you know, we focus so much on, on the great victory at Rock's Drift, but strategically it didn't mean anything. And that's not to diminish the heroism of the defenders, and I'm one of those who, who, you know, will speak up in defense of how many Victoria Crosses and Distinguished Conduct Medals were awarded. But strategically, it changed nothing. Quechua never intended to invade Natal. In fact, the regiments that attacked Rourke's Drift had disobeyed his expressed orders not to cross the border. And yes, they wanted Inyazan, but that was forgotten. Nobody cared about that. Didn't matter because, well, that column's now under siege. Then the disaster at Intombe hits, and... Not only do they lose a bunch of food stores and 100 soldiers, but they also lose a bunch of weapons and 90,000 rounds of ammunition that were being shipped. And then, of course, there's the abortive attack on Schlebon Mountain, another disaster. And yeah. uh, went into a lot of detail there. And so then the very next day, we have the Battle of Kambula, which really was the turning point of the war. It doesn't get the. I was going to say. So, do you cover all three of these battles in depth in that book, in book number four? I do, and that's why the cast is kind of large in it because the uh, the Battle of Antombe wasn't elements of Woods Column. It was members of the 80th Staffordshire Regiment who were garrisoning the town of Lunenburg, if I'm pronouncing that right. They were intent. Uh, they were intended to join Number Four Column. But after one of their companies gets chopped up and, oh, by the way, our reserve ammunition stores have now been lost, they couldn't move either. So 
they eventually joined number four column, but not till a few months later. And so we see that, in fact, the cover of the book uh, depicts uh, the Battle of Entombe. In fact, it's called The uh, Courage of Sergeant Booth, the gentleman, the uh, NCO who kept his head and rallied survivors and fought his way back, uh, was promoted to color sergeant the next day and awarded the Victoria Cross. He was a real man amongst men, wasn't he? He was. You look at pictures of him. And, hard yeah. looking bastard. A hard looking bastard. He is. It's, uh, I, I imagine, I think, wow, imagine having him as a dad. In fact, there's a great family photograph of him. Because he stayed in the army until he was forced out due to age. And there's a great photograph. It's uh, him and his wife. And then behind them are four of their sons who were all in uniform. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. And at that time, and I don't know what year that photograph was taken, but he looks pretty gray in the hair. Uh, two of his sons were sergeants. One was a corporal. And the one who looks like he's about 12, but was probably 18 or 19, was a private. So, yeah, so he features in that and his actions. And I, I even managed to put somebody in with my surname of Mason there because – I found out from reading Robert Hope's book on the Staffordshire Regiment, there was a Private John Mace in the 80th Staffordshire during the Zulu War. Uh -huh. so, oh, well, I can insert him in there. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write him to be a little bit like you? Did he have some of your traits and some of your looks? Uh, actually, no. I mean, because he he's not a major character. You know, he he he's just one of one of Booth's uh, private soldiers. And then in Tomby, uh, you, you you see a lot from that. Well, and. and to give you an idea, so Cruelty of Fate is 611 pages. So it, it, it's a pretty big read. And then we culminate with the Battle of Kambula. And then and then it goes a little bit after. It, it kind of wraps up with leading up to the second invasion. And that rolls into the fifth and final book of the series, which will be released in just over two weeks. And it's called Tears of the Dead, Requiem of the Zulu Kingdom. And that one starts, actually, there's a prologue chapter introducing us to the Prince Imperial. Because from a political standpoint, he plays a role <clears throat> in all this. And I was trying really hard not to introduce too many new characters, especially this late in the series. But I was kind of left choiceless because the Prince Imperial now shows up. He, he's mentioned in Cruelty of Fate because uh, he had gone to the Royal Military Academy of Woolwich uh, trained to be an artillery officer, but because he was a foreign royal, even in exile, he could not be commissioned. But two of his uh, closest friends, uh, Captain Frederick Slade and Lieutenant Arthur Big, were part of Wood's Column, and they fought at Kambula. Yeah. So we're, we're introduced to him. Um, we're introduced to some of the nurses, because I really wanted to talk about the aftermath of the fighting. You know, the war doesn't end just because the last shots have been fired. For the wounded and sick, well, sometimes it never ends if they're crippled for the rest of their lives. And so I was able to incorporate uh, Janet Wells into the story. She was one of the nurses who, who was sent across um, among the first. In fact, she was only the second ever recipient of the Royal Red Cross, which is often sometimes referred to as the nursing VC. And then another new character I did add, only because I think he has a great human interest story, was a very young uh, Gatling gun crewman named John Stevens. But the whole reason I added him into it is because I, I had heard the story of 
um, The Laughing Policeman. It was a music hall song from the 1920s, and it was based on on a fellow who they called Tubby Stevens. He was the largest police constable ever from Leicester. Oh, my hometown. He was kind of a little... Oh, okay. So you, you've heard of him, I'm sure. Do you know I have, yeah. but I couldn't tell you the story. I've just heard the name. Okay, yeah. So so Tubby Stevens, and, and the name was met with affection, not not malice. Uh, he was known for his jovial personality, you know, and he was like five foot eight and weighed, I want to say like 330 pounds at his biggest. Large fellow. Um, but anyway, he was a kind of a famous local celebrity. Well, if you look at any photographs of him, he always has a medal on his uniform, and it's the South Africa Campaign Medal. And then I find out he was a Gatling gunner during the Zulu War. He came over with, um, I can't remember if it was 10th or 11th battery. I don't have my book. I don't have my notes in front of me. But yeah, he was one of the Gatling crewmen. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to put him into the story. You know, there, there, and there is a photograph of the whole battery together. I, I have no idea which one he is. I, I imagine he was much smaller then. And plus, he he was only eighteen and had been in the army like four months when he when he got sent over. So, and then the other complicated issue was in the initial books of the series, I could focus on just one column at a time, one group of characters. Well, now they all come together. So, so we're having to see characters from the old number one column who, with reinforcements, are now called the First Division under Major General Henry Creelock, whose younger brother was. Uh, Chelmsford's military secretary. And then the remnants of the center column actually did not take part in the second invasion. The second division, as it was called, was all uh, new reinforcements under uh, Major General uh, Edward Newdigate. The The only column that kind of remained intact was uh, Colonel Wood's number four column in the north. They were renamed the Flying Column, and they were reinforced with the Gatling guns, and they finally got the companies from the 80th Staffordshire, and I think a few more cannon. But And then Wood was also um, locally promoted to Brigadier General. So the final book culminates everything. It follows the second invasion, the misadventures, for lack of a better term, of the Prince Imperial, and then all the skirmishing that went on and then culminates with the Battle of Ulundi. But then actually, I can't remember what part in the story Ulundi happens. Then because it is the final book of the series, I have to wrap up all the various story arcs. I, I have to, with without phoning it in, without rushing it, you know, like final season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> that was uh, exactly what I was thinking. I love Game of Thrones and season eight. I didn't mind the ending. I was okay with it, but I'm like, wow, you guys rushed this. And I and I was actually thinking that while writing this book. And I'm like, don't rush it, James. Finish the story the way it needs to be told. And it's a monstrosity. It, it's, um, I don't know how much my editor is going to cut or how many adjustments Ian Knight's going to tell me to make. But in paperback, I'm, it looks like it's going to be around 670 pages. So I hope that doesn't uh, turn off readers because of its size. But uh, uh, it, it does wrap everything up. We, we see what happens with you know the remnants of the Southern Column, the Defenders of Rourke's Drift, 
the victors of Kambula and those who all fight at Ulandi. And and then it, it actually ends a few months after the war. So we we I decided and I'm not really going to spoil it territory too much here, but it ends essentially where it began. It, it ends at Isandawana, where where the series at its heart began. So the the long answer to a very short question. <laughs> No, that's brilliant, and I, I hope some of the people listening will, uh, will 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 read the series. I've read the first book and loved it, and as soon as I get through my currently massive reading list, I'm going to get the rest of them done as well, because I really enjoyed the first one. I appreciate hearing that. Uh, I, I've wanted to pick your brain for some time, ju just to hear your honest, no-kidding thoughts uh, on the first book. So, uh, And people have told me they could tell that was a passion project. It was something I just poured my heart and soul into, so I hope I got it right. Well, what I enjoyed as well is, having not long read a lot of the primary sources, such as Maori Brown and so on, a lot of the dialogue, I'm like, ah, I know exactly where that's from. That was from, you know, that was mentioned in Lost Legionary in South Africa. And, you know, so I knew a lot of the dialogue was very raw and very real because I'd actually read it in some of the primary sources. Oh, good. And uh, that's where I got a lot of mine um for that book ian knight's uh, zulu rising was probably the source i used the most but i did use colonel snook's how can man die better and a few other various works and then there was a book bill canaan had recommended and it was just on daily life in the victorian army again very dry reading but very useful and then he recommended i find a copy of queen's regulations from the time which i did i actually found a copy it's actually from 1873 uh, of Queen's Regulations and Orders for the Army. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting read. It, it, it's interesting seeing, you know, in, in, the, in the dry regulations, uh, how things may be different from today. Or, you know, it just gave me ideas from day-to-day -day things. It's like, that's how I found out. Because in my third book, the, the main enlisted soldier we focus on is married before he joins the Army. I'm like, well, how was it for a married if he was already married? Because as... Um, you had to have seven years of good conduct, and then you had to get permission from the regimental colonel to marry. And if given permission, your wife would be entered onto the married role. You'd get a stipend to your pay to take care of her and your children if you had any. And I found out why they had seven years, because they had just changed the terms of enlistment from 12 years to six. Well, most soldiers got out after their six years. The vast majority did not make the army a career. And so it's like, oh, yeah, we'll make it seven years. So a soldier will at least have had to have re-enlisted once. Uh, or the other option was if you were at least a sergeant. You, uh, but if you were already married, they weren't going to turn you down or tell you to divorce your wife. It's just, well, you, you're on your own as far as taking care of your family goes. We're not, you know, we're not giving you, you know, the extra incentive pay there. Right. So that, that adds a little bit there. And there's an entire appendix at the end of uh, Lost Souls, and I, I call it a, a fictional character's historical biography. And it's basically how I created a fictional character, gave him a backstory, just based on what was most probable of that time. Um, the average soldier who joined the ranks was the poorest of the poor. They came from, you know... Most of the time, they join the army to keep from starving to death in the gutter, or from you know 
dying in one of the workhouses or factories or whatever. And that that's why they joined. It was it was stability. It was a guaranteed paycheck. You you they clothed you. You knew when your next meal was and you knew when you were going to get paid. But it was a rough life. But I wanted to ask you, actually, you mentioned Mike Snook's book a couple of times, and I, I, I've only just read it recently. I just wondered what your, what your thoughts were. It's very good. It was the first I ever read. I don't want to have to say you take things with a grain of salt, but I think he, he, he definitely interjects his own bias in there, and he admits it in, in the prefaces and, and throughout. You have no doubt, even if you didn't know going into it, as you're reading it, you have no doubt that he's an officer of the 24th or Southwell's Borders, as it would have been when he served, or the Royal Welsh. Their names changed several times. So you have no doubt there because you can see where his bias lies. Um, my take on it was he absolutely and, – and, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seemed pretty obvious to me that he absolutely hated Durnford, Colonel Durnford. Uh, yeah, didn't was not a fan uh, uh, of him at all. And – kind of wants to absolve Polane from any culpability. If you take it for what it is, in fact, um, a, a friend of mine who's uh, retired, uh, Sergeant Major, had said, he, he called it Mike Snook's uh, love poem to his regiment. I would call that very apt, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a criticism. It, it's just saying how I, I view it. But as far as getting a soldier's perspective, it's, it's very well written. It's very well. I think it's a great. Uh, I think it's great to read his books and Ian Knight's Zulu Rising. I, I think reading both of those together will probably get you the fullest uh, perspective. And again, yeah. Colonel Snook only covers Rourke's Drift and Isandawana because those are what his regiment was involved in. Um, I, I don't know that he's written about the rest of the war because you know this is what he was most familiar with. My, my personal take on it is it was a lot more complicated. Uh, in fact, you may have read in, in Brutal Valor in the appendices, I, I have an entire appendix called The Complicated Legacy of Colonel Anthony Durnford. And it's like five pages just trying to, trying to sort out his role, his culpability. You know, it's like you, you cannot deny that he died, as they say, like a Victorian officer should have. Because if you were an officer in command of troops, you did not quit the field as long as any of your men were in danger. You know, you were a division commander. If you had one private soldier who was still in danger, you didn't leave until that soldier was safe. <clears throat> so, and that's Unless why when people Lieutenant ask Lieutenant Hallwood uh, of the 80th, of course. Yeah, he was court-martialed. And I cannot believe he was found not guilty because... I'm sorry, and, and in Cruelty of Fate, I'm pretty harsh towards Harward because to me, that is cut and dry. <clears throat> he says he went back to fetch reinforcements. Well, I mean, he ran back, fell off his horse, and then passed out in a dead faint after saying everyone's dead. Like, really? Really? That's that's how you're going to go with that? Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, instead, the proper thing to do, and, and I incorporate this a little bit, um, when I'm talking about soldiers from a different company or a different regiment from the 13th uh, Somerset is they're, they're going out on patrol and the lieutenant in charge, he specifically asks, okay, which one of you guys can ride? And one of the soldiers says, well, I can, sir. He says, okay, if we get in trouble, you are taking my horse back to Kambula to, to sound the alarm. Yeah. The officer doesn't quit the field. Now, 
there's a caveat to that. The, the key phrase is officers in command of troops. People like to be critical towards um, Melville and Coghill. You know, for, well, did they have permission to quit the field? More than likely, yes. But here's the thing is, neither of them were in command positions. Coghill was a staff officer and Melville was the battalion adjutant. They did not have troops under their direct command. If they had and they abandoned them, that's a different story. But like uh, a prime example um, that you had actually mentioned to me before was uh, Lieutenant Anstey. He could have gotten on his horse and tried to escape. Instead, he stayed on foot and tried to tried to extract his company. He he did what what was uh, what was proper there. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and they got bloody far as well. Quite amazing, really. I was amazed when I, I actually had to go back and uh, and revise Brutal Valor because I thought it was only half a mile. But then when I actually walked to the ground there, I'm like, wait, here's the Cairns. Here's where Anstey and his men fell. And I'm looking back towards this Andawana and I'm like, oh, that's not half a mile. That's about three miles. Because, you know, it may be a direct you know, line of a half mile, but they were going to the southwest trying to get, I, I believe they were heading towards Fugitive's Drift because they knew the road to Sandawana was cut off. A correction, the road to Rourke's Drift. They, they knew they could not get back to Rourke's Drift, so they were trying to get to the Umzinyathi, to the Southern Drift, or just get to the river, period, and make a swim for it. And, yeah, it's a, oh, God, it's a, it's a heart-wrenching story when you think how far they got, the terror they felt the entire time. They, and they probably may have even thought, when they got clear of the camp, and thought maybe they were past the right and left horn, that the trap had closed behind them and they were they were away. And then to run into another host of Zulus at the stream, and by that point they were done. They were probably out of bullets, they're exhausted. You know, form a square and take as many of them with you as you can. But I cut you off a little bit earlier, actually, when you were talking about Durnford and uh, his legacy. So please, uh, please, please carry on. Oh, no worries. Well, and I get I get squirrel moments all the time. And in fact, I was actually just thinking, OK, what were we talking about before? Because I went off on a tangent. I do that a lot. I, I hope your uh, your listeners will bear with me there. Yeah. So here's the thing is. I think we ask the wrong question a lot as to who was to blame for the disaster to Sandawana. Well, to me, that takes credit away from the Zulus. It was their victory, not just a British defeat. And we, we like to armchair General Chelmsford. And I'm going to I'm going to go out here and agree with the end night. I think Chelmsford gets a raw deal a lot because people like to say, well, he should never have divided his forces. Well, first off. Taking all the political stuff aside, the rightness of the war, whatever, just go to the situation at two o'clock in the morning when he was awoken, what did he know at that moment and what were his options? He couldn't up and move the entire column because of logistics issues. They didn't have enough wagons. In fact, uh, Lieutenant Smith Dorian, who was a um, transport officer, had had a bunch of wagons that were being sent back to Rourke's Drift that morning to bring up more supplies. That, that was his orders for the day. Now, Chelmsford had no way of knowing that King Cetchwayo wanted the exact same thing he did. He did not know that the Zulus wanted a head-on force-on-force battle. If he had known that, he probably would have selected better ground than Isandawana, because you've walked the ground there. The ground there sucks for a defense. It's horrible. Um, would have probably selected better ground and waited for the Zulus to come to him. But he didn't know that. He had just fought the Kosa 
forgive me if I pronounce that wrong, and the year prior. And so to him, you know, looking at the racist, racist attitudes of the time, he thinks one black-skinned African warrior with a shield and spear fights the same as any other. That's just reality. And that's what they thought. He didn't know that the Kosa were not the Zulus. <clears throat> and so, and now his other fear too was, because he, he kind of knew the ground to the east there, you know, through that, through the, um, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of the valley leading towards Manjani Falls. But he was afraid of the Zulus going behind him or just slipping past him and invading Natal. Again, he doesn't know that Quechuao has told his warriors not to cross into Natal. So he's afraid of, okay, they're going to slip past me and maybe overrun Rourke's Drift, and then we're in a world of hurt because now we're stuck on this side of the river and they're rampaging Natal. You know, he doesn't know any of this, and unfortunately they didn't have proper reconnaissance and intelligence. And so when he hears from the uh, from the mounted troops and NNC warriors uh, who are – near Manjani Falls, oh, hey, we've seen thousands of campfires here. We think we've just seen the, the main Zulu Impi. What's he supposed to do? Okay, I'm going to take as many troops as I can and try and get them, hit them in a meeting engagement. You know, basically, he's trying to engage and develop the situation with the main Zulu Impi, and if need be, call for reinforcements. And that's probably why he ordered Durnford up to Sandawana, because his troops were all mounted and they were mobile. So, you know, you have to go with what he knew at that moment because he had no idea where the main MP was. Little did he know, and, and this is where another myth comes in, um, a lot I, I hear all the time that, oh, the Zulus deliberately drew Chelmsford away from Isandawana. No, they didn't. They did not. The whole reason they were encamped uh, in the bowl behind Mabaso Hill, which was murderous terrain to get over, you know, if they'd come straight through the valley, they could have come straight at the camp. But the whole reason they'd gone around is because there was a local chieftain whose li uh, loyalty they were uncertain of. And so uh, Niting Shwayo, the Zulu commanding general, the commanding Nkosi, his thought is, well, we don't want th this, this fellow to know we're here because he might warn the British we're coming. So we're going to go around. And I think his name was Machana. I, I hope I'm getting that right. Like I said, I don't have my notes in front of me. But anyway, Machana sees the NNC and the British mounted troops. And so he and he's got maybe 60, 100 followers. Well, he tells them to build as many fires as you can. His goal was not to draw the, the British away from the camp. In fact, that's the last thing he wanted. His goal was to make it look like he had such a large force there that the British wouldn't attack him. That was his intent. Now, he didn't know that this was going to, and he didn't know where the main Zulu MP was either. He didn't know. So it was just a bunch of, um, bunch of incidents that, that, that culminated in what neither side had wanted because the Zulus end up at Mabaso Hill. Well, they didn't plan on attacking on the 22nd. Their goal was to uh, conduct reconnaissance that day. Plus it was the day of the new moon, which is a day of ill omens to the Zulus. So, meanwhile, Chelmsford has has left Isandawana, and and mind you too that if, if there were any Zulus watching Isandawana, which we don't think there were, they couldn't have seen what was going on. There was a you know it was shrouded in mist, it was dark, 
And when 2nd Battalion of the 24th was was roused from their bunks, Chelmsford had ordered them not to use bugles. It's like, go from tent to tent, get everyone up, because I don't want the Zulus to know we're leaving. And he leaves what he thinks is going to be a sufficient force in case a marauding band of Zulus attacks. He doesn't think that the camp's going to attack by the main enemy of 25,000 warriors. And also from a, from a strategic perspective, now you got to give credit to Niching Wyo. He was a brilliant strategist and tactician. If he had deliberately drawn Chelmsford away from the camp, which is the softer target? The column with Chelmsford, who strung out on the march, going through a valley, scattered in the dark, or the British camp that you know nothing about, you don't know how many troops are there, if it's fortified or not, which are you actually going to attack if your intent was to draw Chelmsford away? And again, people say, yeah, they, they say he drew Chelmsford away. Well, no, because I don't think there was a single Zulu who had any idea what Chelmsford looked like. They didn't have access to photographs of him. So, um, and and so, okay, so Chelmsford's at Manjeni Falls with a little over half the column. He's got four of their six cannon. He leaves second of the, or correction, first of the 24th under Brevet Lieutenant Colonel Polane. And Polane had only just shown up. You know, in the film Zulu Dawn, it makes it seem like he'd been there the whole time. He'd only held his command for five days. Yeah. Yeah, he had just turned up there. And then they have uh, Durmford's mounted troops. Okay. So you can't, like I said, I mean, the, the whole thing was, okay, who's to blame? So again, long answer to a short question. You know, Chelmsford was acting on what he knew at that given moment. Now for, for Durnford, Durnford's initial reaction was correct because he saw several thousand warriors off to the east. His fear is, again, not knowing that they're elements of the main Zulu MP, he's thinking, oh, bugger me, are these guys getting up behind Chelmsford? Is he actually engaging the main MP at Manjani Falls? And here's about, you know, three, five thousand warriors who are going to be crawling up his backside. No, he was totally in the right to, to go out after them and engage them. That was that was tactically correct at that moment. Now we're it kind of falls apart for Durnford is when he realized he was up against a lot more than a renegade regiment of Zulus. At some point he had to realize it was the left horn of the entire army. Once he knew that he should have been coordinating with Polane. First off, he should have told Polane because again, Polane never knew what he was up against. You know, and in fact, when we were at Isandawana and we're standing on the site where Polane's headquarters was, Ian's looking at the ridge and he says, yeah, Polane could see bugger all. He could see the regiments of the chest cresting the ridge, about 10,000 warriors and all. A formidable force, but one he should have been able to handle. Now, Polane gets criticized for, for his firing line being too thin and too far forward of the camp. And I was critical of that too at first. The reason why they were deployed far forward is because there was a there was dongas in the low ground that they wanted they wanted to deny the Zulus access to. They wanted them exposed to to their firepower for as long as possible. Were they spread thin? Yeah, they were. But for what they knew at that moment, it's like, well, here's ten thousand Zulus. They're rushing us head on. We'll form a firing line and break them. And they did for a while. Mm. Um, I think it's only we when often their flanks forget. got turned, really, that they they lost the battle, wasn't it? If it had stayed, yeah, it, 
as it was, they would have won. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they held for a long time, and, and it kind of became sport to the British. You know, it was kind of like a sporting contest because the Zulus were within about 200 yards of the firing line, but then they couldn't move. Every time they rose up out of the low ground, they, they got shot to pieces. And again, they don't know what's going on on their right flank about, you know, a couple miles away behind um, that, uh, gosh, the conical copy to the east. They can't see what's going on there. Nor do they know that the right horn is going around behind a Sandawana. And it, it's kind of interesting because they had engaged elements of the right horn earlier. Uh, Kaveya Mostin's companies early on had deployed forward and, and were firing on the Zulus. They didn't. They thought, again, it was just a renegade band. They didn't realize it was elements of the right horn who had skylined themselves. You know, the Zulu attack was not carried out flawlessly. They made a lot of mistakes. Uh, the, the warriors of the right horn skylining, skylining themselves. You don't do that. You stay behind the reverse slope. Well, they exposed themselves, so the British engaged them. And a lot of, uh, a lot of companies of warriors rushed into the fray too quickly without waiting for the rest of their regiments in support. And again, they, they got shot up really bad. I, I think it was just pure guts that the left horn was able to, to break through, the ones who, were, who Durnford was fighting, because the ground there is flat and it's open. There's nothing to hide behind. And, and um, Maloka Zulu, the Zulu Duna, who uh, we know a lot about the battle from his accounts, said they crawled on their stomachs. You know, he said we crawled like serpents and he was watching his friends get shot to pieces. Um, but here, here's another area where Durnford, he, he made a critical error and it, it's basic leadership. Um, so he had just arrived at camp and he had sent, I think it was Lieutenant Vaughn, he had sent back to bring up their ammunition wagons. He never told Vaughn where to stage them. So later in the battle, when he's sending a couple of other officers, I believe Alfred Henderson was one of them, to go bring up ammunition, they don't know where to go. They have no idea where, where their ammunition wagon is. And I think Durnford's biggest drawback was he got tunnel vision really bad. He was exceptionally brave. You cannot take that from him. He stayed and fought with his men to the very, very end. Um, but here's the thing is, he was also a, a, a lieutenant colonel, breveted to full colonel. He didn't know it at the time. And his level of responsibility, exceptional bravery alone is not enough. You have to have situational awareness. You have to know what's going on around you. And if you don't know, you send somebody to find out what's happening. Yeah, um, yeah no, to be technical. Oh, no. And, it, and it's unfortunate. Because it was actually elements of his number two column who found the Zulus, uh, Lieutenants Ra and Roberts. But when Ron Roberts found the main MP and rode back to camp, they didn't rejoin with Durnford. They ended up on the firing line with the companies of the 24th. So, so there were, uh, yeah, there, there were mistakes made. Now, had they done everything picture perfect, and again, you, you cannot know the for sure answer to this because... Like in, in Ian Knight's uh, Facebook group, I know we've talked about this ad nauseum. I mean, okay, what if they had known and they fell back on the camp and, you know, formed a giant square around the ammunition wagons? Could they have held? My personal opinion on that, as a retired soldier, as one who has studied this 
for years now, I would say no. Even even if Chelmsford had been there with all of uh, second of the 24th, I don't think they could have held because the terrain works so against them. Here's the thing is the whole right horn, if you look at where the right horn came up behind Isandawana, they could get within one to 200 yards before the British could even see them. So, you know, and, and that was about 5,000 warriors in all. So 5,000 warriors, if they keep their wits about them, um, they can make a rush uh, of a couple hundred yards in a minute. <laughs> I, I don't think they could have, I, I really don't think it would have ended any differently. You know, just the fact they held as long as they did is, I think, I think says something. And you also, like I say before, where I think not enough credit is given to the Zulus. So they were not supposed to fight that day. That was not Nitin Shuayo's intent. It's like, we're going to recon, we're going to get a reconnaissance of the camp and we're going to get eyes on and know what we're up against before we attack tomorrow. Well, Rod Roberts, their troops of Zakali and Basuda horsemen, they show up and they start shooting at them. And it's like, oh crap, we, we have no choice but to fight now because now the British know we're here. Even though there were mistakes made with, like I said, elements of the right horn skyline themselves, companies of warriors rushing in too quickly. However, strategically, this huge force of 25,000 warriors, every last man knew his place. If they, they were in the chest regiments, if they were the right horn, in the left horn, where their places were, and they knew their commander's intent. You know, to, to coin a U.S. Army phrase, it's like when in the absence of orders, what is the, what is the commanding officer's overall intent? Well, they knew it was to surround the camp and wipe the British out. So as a whole, they executed their mission like they were supposed to. And you figure that frontage extended probably 10 miles from end to end, from the edge of the, the right horn to the left horn and everything in between. They didn't have radios. They didn't have bugles. They probably had runners, but... You know, once battle was engaged, how much could they really even talk to each other? Um, I, I, I think the only, I think the only time when the senior Amakosi were involved was towards the end when the Nkosi and Kosana went down to rally the regiments of the chest to to do one final push, and he gave his life doing that. He he was you know he shouted a battle cry to his warriors, said the king did not you know. Did not tell you you could do this. Did not tell you you could lie here hiding in the in the in the ditches, and then he takes a bullet through the head. But it was enough. So, so yeah. Long answer. I I think, I think we look at it too much as a British defeat, and not enough as a Zulu victory. Fair point, and I think I think that's a good place to uh, to kind of move on from that and kind of wrap up because I'd love to hear what's next for you, James. Is this the Zulu War finished for you, or are you is it something you think you'll always come back to? As far as writing goes, I mean it's finished. I, I've I've told the story I set out to do. You know, we we start at the beginning as a beginning, a middle, and an end. It, it's finished. Uh, will, will I always have a love for this time period? Absolutely. Uh, you'll, you'll still see me pop up on, on Ian's uh, Facebook group from time to time. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it makes me sad, you know, to, to wrap this up. I, I, I always feel that way when I finish a series, especially one I've been this passionate about. And what's, what's next then? What are you going to write next? So 
I mentioned earlier, mo most of my books I've written are set in ancient Rome. Um, so Tears of the Dead will be my 23rd book overall, but 15 of those 23 have been in Rome. I'm probably going back to that. I, I have an idea for it, for a series to start. Um, cause the, the Roman books I've written all follow a particular dynasty, uh, called the Artorians. And so I think I'm going to go back to that. I, I, I have, I have ideas for a, a story about a Roman expedition to Ireland, which is thought to have happened around the year 80 AD. And I'll probably cover, you know, follow the Artorians through like another three generations. I have enough stories in my head there. As far as other passion projects, though, I really want to cover the First World War. I, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I have thoughts for three, maybe four separate stories. Uh, Battle of Mons, I, I think, would be great to cover. Uh, it was depicted actually quite well in a BBC series called Our World War. I, I thought it was done great. It showed the VC actions of uh, Lieutenant Maurice Deese and uh, Private Sidney Godley. Uh, something else I'd like to cover, again, based on a film I saw called The White Horseman, is uh, the Australian Light Horse in the Middle East. Uh, I think it was the Battle of Beersheba, which was won because of the Australian Light Horse. And then I'd like to cover the Air War at some point, maybe the final days of Baron von Richthofen, you know, who we now call the Red Baron. So that, that's other thoughts. And then something else I really want to do at some point is a medieval series. Uh, probably set during the reign of Edward III. Yeah, so I've got I've got all these ideas in my head. I mean, I even have possibly a sci-fi series that would be many years down the road because uh, my passion is history. But I, I've made notes from weird dreams I've had. I'm like, that might make a good sci-fi story someday. I don't know. So yeah, short answer is ancient Rome. But at some point, I think you will see the First World War and uh, medieval from me. So I hope you'll agree that James was great value and brought a new and different perspective to season one. I've read the first of his books, Brutal Valor, about Isandwana and really enjoyed it, so I can highly recommend it. Well, it's with a heavy heart that I can now finally wrap up season one of the Redcoat History podcast. But if you love the Anglo-Zulu War, you can see some of these battlefields on my YouTube page. Just search on that platform for Redcoat History. I'd love to keep going with the Anglo-Zulu War, but the British Army has a long and rich history that needs exploring more. In Season 2 we're looking at the Battle of Plassey and the beginnings of the British Empire in India. It's rip-roaring stuff, packed with heroism, excitement, double-dealing and world-changing battles. What more could you need? I'll aim to post the first episode on Monday the 2nd of December and maybe try and get another one out before Christmas. So please bear with me and please also help to spread the word about the podcast, share the links on social media, tell your friends. My goal is to bring to life the rich and exciting history of the British Army in a way that will hopefully inform and entertain a new generation of historians, patriots and maybe even help inspire a few future warriors. Until the next episode, remember, keep your bayonet sharp and your powder dry. The Queen's enemies are out there and they're waiting for us to turn our backs. <laughs>